I get so many questions about probiotics, and I'm excited to share the one that I have found makes a huge difference in my gut, and I have a 10% off code for you. I have experimented with many different probiotics over the years. As someone who's struggled with IBS since I was a kid, I notice a huge difference when I'm taking a quality probiotic versus when I'm not. I've been searching for a probiotic that contains a combination of evidence-based strains, including both lactobacilli and bifidobacteria strains. And I found that in Doctor's Choice Probiotic from MD Logic Health. Doctor's Choice is formulated with 30 billion live beneficial bacteria per capsule and provides a mixture of 10 lactobacilli and bifidobacteria strains shown through research to be most beneficial when taken together. It also contains FOS, which is a powerful prebiotic that feeds the probiotic strains. I love that it includes this combination. There's a lot of research about how when these two strains are combined, they have stronger anti-inflammatory effects and can be very protective. Doctor's Choice Probiotic is made by MD Logic Health. I love the facility that manufactures Doctor's Choice. It's made in a USA GMP FDA registered facility. It's tested for potency and has a special delayed release technology to ensure that the capsules make it through the stomach acid and into the intestines where it's needed 99% of the probiotics on the market don't have that. Doctor's Choice Probiotic does not require refrigeration. Their innovative foil seal ensures each capsule remains potent and effective until consumed. If you struggle with chronic digestive issues, leaky gut, feel like you get sick all the time, or want to optimize your ability to break down food, including protein, I highly recommend giving it a try. Both my husband and I take one every single night, and it's greatly improved my digestion in the morning. If you know, you know. Go to mdlogichealth.com forward slash doctor's choice and use coupon code WELLFED for 10% off. Again, that's mdlogichealth.com forward slash D-R-S-C-H-O-I-C-E, doctor's choice, and use coupon code WELLFED for 10% off. You are now listening to Well-Fed Women, the show that's been radically changing the way women perceive health, fitness, and their bodies since 2015. I'm your host, Noelle Tarr. Submit your questions to wellfedwomen at gmail.com, and you can keep up with the show on Instagram at wellfedwomen. Welcome to the Well-Fed Women podcast. This is episode number 435. I am thrilled that you're here because today I am renewing an episode that I need to listen to about dialing in hydration, salt intake, and electrolyte supplementation. I was just thinking to myself, actually, uh, last week how I needed to go back and listen to this episode. So what better time to renew it than over the summer holidays when it is hot? And as things heat up, we sweat more, we lose more salt, and that can lead to electrolyte depletion. So as I was kind of preparing this interview, I was going back and found myself listening to all his answers and (laughs) was re-listening to a lot of it. And it's really insightful. I'm trying to be more intentional about mineral supplementation and electrolytes. Specifically, as I'm increasing my workouts, I'm trying to be more intentional about it with my family as my kids are becoming more active. And I know that a lot of you guys have questions about this too. So in today's episode, we do talk about electrolyte supplementation around workouts. We talk about adrenal dysfunction and how potassium and sodium and magnesium all play into that. And we also talk about what it means when you crave salt and how can you improve hydration with electrolytes? And does that mean maybe you drink less and how do you regulate your water intake? So lots of insight, lots of really good applicable tips. 
Many of you know Rob Wolf. He's a former research biochemist and a two-times New York Times Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. He also is the co-author of a book called Sacred Cow. He, for a long time, had a very popular podcast called The Paleo Solution. It was actually the first podcast I ever listened to probably over a decade ago now. So uh, I, I love being always being able to connect with Rob and talk to him. It's it's definitely a pinch me moment. And he's so knowledgeable. So I'm really excited to get this out to everybody so that we can all learn from it. So now let's get to the interview. So the last time you were here, which was um, episode number 120, feels like a long time ago, we talked about carbohydrates and finding your specific carbohydrate tolerance, which you detailed in your book, Wired to Eat. So what have you been up to lately, specifically with this lady latest book that I heard sold out on Amazon? I think it, 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 it did, but in a in unfortunately way. Um, so sacred cow, uh, Diana Rogers and I have been noodling on a a a treatment of this kind of um, what what I would call, for lack of a better term, like a, a vegan whack a mole. Where if a health topic comes up around meat. Um, you start discussing that and then the topic shifts to the environment and then you discuss that and then the, it shifts to ethics, you know, the ethical considerations of meat eating. And so it feels like this game of whack-a-mole. And we've we've known for a long time that we needed to address, you know, is animal husbandry the greatest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions? Does uh, the raising of capital consume far, far more water than what what is reasonable given what we we get out of it, and it's um. So we basically had to tackle the health, environmental, and ethical considerations of an animal product inclusive food system. And when we turned in our our uh, rough draft, our our initial manuscript, it was over six hundred pages. It got really well edited down. I I feel down to two hundred and eighty pages, but it, it, we cover a really a shocking amount of material like these these subsections usually have a five or six hundred page book just addressing the you know pieces of of the you know the whole story that we tried to cover but mm. diana and i worked on the book and the the film there's also a film available you know itunes amazon prime etc uh, with the same title sacred cow uh, which looks at the largely the same material, but from a very different perspective, you know, just mm-hmm. just looking at, at uh, kind of the difference between our current industrial row crop food system and the potential upside that we could have from uh, more of a regenerative approach. And we've wanted to do this thing for the better part of 10 years. But as as luck would have it, uh, I, I do tend to be kind of early with things. And mm. um, Diana wanted to kill me for a long time. But I, I said, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. Like if you're too early with a, a message or an idea, it just it just dies. And um, we we finally about five years ago, I was like, OK, I, I think it, it's time to start working on this. And by the time we're done, it'll probably be, you know, it'll be on. And mm. uh, I think the timing was really good. The the bugger we did sell out on Amazon, but that was was not a good thing. Uh, as you know, the, the release week for a book is absolutely critical for its success. If you can get some really good mojo going that that release week, you might make a bestsellers list. If you get onto a bestsellers list, you start getting all this kind of preferential uh, promotion and whatnot. And what had happened is we uh, begged and cajoled both our, our publisher and Amazon to stock a lot more books than what they were stocking um, with, with Wired to Eat. 
uh, which sold really, really quite well, but that um, uh, something like 95% of the, the books that, that sold in the, the first month sold in the three days prior to release. And wow. then it, it, it kind of went off from there. And so it's this very nonlinear process. And, um, and we were in the, the midst of COVID and still are. And so Amazon had really curtailed uh, non-essential items as part of their, their stuff. So we, it, 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 the, the book was supposed to release and it, it did technically release, uh, you know, January of, I think, gosh, what was it? Uh, June, June, June 3rd or something like that. Uh, mm. But the, the Monday night at midnight prior to that, uh, the book was sold out on Amazon. <laughs> and then people started getting a message that said, this book usually ships in two to four months. Oh, and my that, gosh. That basically killed it. Um, the, it you know, we, and we, the interesting thing, we, when I did Wired to Eat, I had a fair amount of success from, from colleagues in this, this scene who write similar books. But it, it wasn't a massive amount of you know, support because it, it, it technically could be a competitive book with, with other folks. But I got a little bit of support. But because nobody else is dumb enough to tackle this, this you know, food and sustainability topic, um, we had support from everybody. I mean, we, we really did have a massive amount of support and people mailed their email lists and stuff like that. So we really had a remarkable amount of backing. But when Amazon sold it, and there's no brick and mortar stores because all of them were closed. Yeah. So it was like one option, basically. So, yeah, we really got uh, hammered on that. And the, the, the book has sold OK. And, and we've it, it's got to be I think we have over 600 five-star reviews now yeah. mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's gotta be the highest five-star reviews with the fewest total books sold in the history of Amazon. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it, it's a very good book. I'm very proud of it. Um, and, uh, all props go to Diana. She was really the, you know, the, the mad genius behind this mm -hmm. thing, but it's, uh, it was interesting. It was kind of a little bit of a heartbreaker. It may end up selling reasonably well over the long haul because, um, again, nobody, nobody else is really going to touch this topic with a 10 foot stick. Like no. it, it was a massive amount of work. And I, I think it would be hard to go in and have somebody do a better job than what we did on that. Like we, we really did diligence on it. So, I mean, that was, that was a big chunk of what I've been up to, uh, since, um, wired to eat. And we did move from, Reno, Nevada to Texas. And now we're getting ready to move from Texas to Montana. And so in, in less than two, two and a half years, we will have moved three times, two of those moves over 2000 miles. So, um, mm. <laughs> yeah, good, good times. It's a whole different world moving with, with children. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a lot. Um, it's, it's a lot. So yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun watching you guys. I mean, it was fun. Um, of course, I didn't have anything to do with the book, but I, I it's it, watching from afar, watching you and, and Diana kind of have this passion, spread this sort of uh, topic that no, like it, it just this untouchable topic. Nobody ever wanted to go near it besides mm -hmm. maybe Joel Salatin, you know, right. Um, right. And kind of watching you guys build sort of this this almost like and manifest this this shift in thinking um and you were so right like thinking back on it it would have been 
too early it, because now we're living in this day and age where people are really passionate about I mean, I say really, but they're much more passionate than they have been historically about how their meat is raised and um, humanity and like treating people like workers and farmers well, which is what a a prior sponsor of ours, you know, did grassroots co-op. People are Mm -hmm. buying, you know, more in in that way, buying, you know, boxes and trying to buy from local farmers and um, really can recognize that regenerative agriculture is not what we think, you know, is not the same as how, you know, meat is raised in in this country. And so there, it's it's two different systems. You know, you can't make all these claims about blaming the cow when it's not really that. It's how the cow is, is being raised and, well, factory farmed. So it's yeah, been... And- yeah, just a quick thing I would throw in there is is just that, uh, uh, you know, topics like climate change and different social justice issues around food are really, really important. And although I, I feel like Diana and I did the best job we possibly could in this book, maybe we got some stuff wrong. Like I, I really, we, man, you wouldn't believe the amount of references we have in there and the, the, the fact checking that we had that went into the book. But the, the main thing I would throw out there for folks is that there, there is a powerful narrative that is, um, you know, meat is disproportionately bad for the environment and, uh, uh, you know, it's it's actually become part of kind of this COVID process, like the Great Reset. Mm-hmm. If you look at the World Economic Forum website, they're they're saying that we need to really, really, really curtail meat production and meat cons- consumption around the world to address climate change. Maybe those folks are right, or possibly they're wrong. But either way, this is kind of like treating an illness. And if you get that wrong, it's going to be terrible for the patient. And mm-hmm. so the, the thing that I would throw out to people is that maybe Diana and I are completely wrong or possibly we might be some voices of reason that are really going counter to this, this what is basically this massive multinational, highly moneyed, you know, group of folks that are, are trying to foist a, an industrial row crop food system on the, the totality of planet Earth. And, and I think that that's a very defensible place to 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 put that like it you know you 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 can't have this this kind of row crop centric model in in any other way it just it just really doesn't work um Mm. and so do folks want that and is that really the penultimate solution to our, our climate change woes and if it's not then focusing all effort and and remediation around that is not actually going to fix anything. It may actually make things much worse. Hmm. Yeah, sacred cow. I'll link to it in the show notes. This could <laughs> we could probably talk for an hour about this, but I want to jump into um, what you've also been working on, which is uh, uh, trying to help the world with your advice on hydration and sodium intake and electrolytes. I know you have your own personal story of kind of struggling with this, but I just kind of want to jump into, and of course you can, you can talk us through that. But um, I think that I think a great place to start in, in terms of like building a foundation. So we have somewhere to, to go from is, is what the heck are electrolytes and and what functions do they have in the body and why have they made such a huge difference for you and your training? 
Yeah, no, I'll maybe even back up a little bit more and and look at, you know, what is hydration? And Mm. if you pick up a a textbook of medical physiology and you look up and you look at the topic on hydration, hydration has always been water and then these things, electrolytes, which will electrolytes are are. Uh, either negatively or positively charged ions that include uh, these these metals and then the uh, the anions that go with them like uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, uh, chloride, bicarbonate, and these are the things that are really the currency that, of the way that life works. Like people have probably heard of like. ATP and, uh, you know, energy production via ATP and whatnot. But all of that happens mainly to drive different gradients of, of uh, more sodium outside of cells, more potassium inside of cells. And then when those things try to try to reach an equilibrium, then we're able to generate energy as a, a consequence of that. And um, so, I mean, this, electrolytes really are kind of like at the, the core foundation of the way that life works. Like every time we think, every time our muscle moves, it's due to electrolytes sloshing in and out of of cells, basically. And otherwise, like life just doesn't function. And when you look at some of the most challenging things that emergency room docs face, um, pH is a really big one. Like people can die or be very, very sick rapidly if, if pH goes too high or too low. And another thing that is, is remarkably challenging to deal with for a host of different scenarios are electrolytes. You know, if, if you have too much potassium, too little sodium and, and uh, you know, different iterations off of that. But somewhere along the line, this idea of hydration got decoupled from electrolytes and it just became water. And what's kind of interesting about that is there was a a time when uh, military recruits, you you know, kids doing uh, double days at football, folks doing athletic events, they didn't die from over consuming water, from from hyperhydration. And that was when folks tended to to do kind of something that now seems kind of wacky. They would suck on salt tablets and then sip on water uh, up to their 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 kind of you know taste tolerance. And and somewhere along the line, uh, sodium in particular got very demonized. We got a, a separation of electrolytes from the the bigger picture of hydration. And I, I know I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit, but that that sodium piece is maybe worth digging into because I know you talk a lot about health and nutrition and topics like like insulin resistance and whatnot. And when folks are eating kind of a more modern, refined diet, it, it is easy to overeat. It's easy to overeat on a, a lot of refined carbohydrates. And these foods tend to have a fair amount of sodium in them. And when our insulin levels are elevated, mainly from over-consuming food in a a chronic way, um, we tend to then begin retaining sodium and retaining water. And this is where we can end up in a situation where our blood pressure elevates. And it's funny, um, we keep kind of hashing around these the the periphery of things like cholesterol and lipoproteins and what, what importance those things play in cardiovascular disease, but it, it's it's really interesting that the possibly one of the greatest risk factors in that whole story is is blood pressure. And an interesting piece to that is uh, low sodium diets have been a, a t- 
attempted for 40, 50, 60 years, and they just really don't work that well. They don't really bring blood pressure or hypertension down all that much. And it's because if insulin levels are elevated because we're chronically overeating, then it doesn't really matter how much sodium a person consumes, the body will hang on to it by hook or by crook. And this is also some of the magic that we see when folks eat a less refined diet, something more like paleo or even keto, insulin levels drop. When insulin decreases, then we tend to uh, decrease the secretion of a hormone called aldosterone. Aldosterone causes us to retain water. And so this is that, that really rapid water loss that occurs when people do a dietary shift, particularly mm. in the direction towards a, a low-carb diet. And oftentimes people will kind of poo-poo the fact that there's this water loss early in a, a, a dietary change. And, it, you know, it's, it's actually that is the thing that reduces blood pressure and, and you know, could, could really dramatically uh, curtail cardiovascular disease risk factors, specifically mm -hmm. hypertension. So, you know, it, it, hopefully I kind of tied together a little bit of, you know, hydration, big picture, what electrolytes yeah. are and kind of how sodium got demonized in this whole story. And it, it, it really isn't the... It, it's been kind of guilt by association. Do processed foods have a lot of sodium in them? Yes. Is the sodium the biggest factor in the problem of processed foods? I would say no, other than making food salty makes it more tasty, and so you tend to eat more of it. And, and in my opinion, that's where it, it, it directly becomes more of a problem. I have an incredible discount for you to use on my favorite research-backed essential aminos I take every day now to support muscle protein synthesis. Most of us have the goal of aging well and maintaining or even building muscle mass. In order to do this, your body needs sufficient amino acids because they are the building blocks of your tissues. Unfortunately, most women aren't getting enough essential amino acids and that can cascade into long-term issues because they're vital for functions throughout the body, including muscle protein synthesis, tissue repair, and nutrient absorption. Amino acids aren't just for people who strength train. No matter what you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. Keon Aminos is my fundamental supplement for fitness. I personally have been taking the Keon Aminos capsules during my workouts right after my workouts. And even on my off days to support my body's amino acid requirements, I also take their creatine now daily to support strength and recovery. I just mix a scoop in with water because it's totally tasteless. Keon is backed by over 20 years of clinical research, has the highest quality ingredients, no fillers or junk, and undergoes rigorous quality testing. They make essential amino acids available in capsules and powders, and the powders taste amazing. If you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, and enhance athletic performance, get Keon Aminos. You can save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases. Just go to getkeon.com forward slash wellfed. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com forward slash wellfed to get my fundamental supplements for fitness, Keon Aminos. So one of the main electrolytes is sodium. And as you touched on, we have been told for, I, I don't know how long, as long as I've been alive, you know, very long that we should be following a very low-salt diet to lower the risk of experiencing heart disease or cardiovascular disease. I think the U.S. government has it now at like 
1500 milligrams a day mm-hmm. as, as ideal in quotations. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what does the literature say about sodium intake and how it relates? Like how how does intake relate to the risk of experiencing long term health issues? Like why do they keep telling us to follow these low salt diets? Yeah, I mean, again, it's um, it's people who took a lot of biochemistry and then really didn't learn it <laughs> because it, it's a. Uh, there's, again, this understanding that under certain circumstances, specifically hyperinsulinemia, you know, insulin resistance, we do retain sodium and that can lead to elevated blood pressure. But it, it, the DASH diet and a host of other low sodium diets have been tested where they, they have people consuming virtually no sodium. And a, a, sodium is a, a it is a vital nutrient like you will die without some amount of sodium. So. Uh, uh, you know, at some point you do have to feed folks some sodium. And so mm-hmm. long as the insulin problem is not addressed, again, it doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't really reduce mm-hmm. blood pressure much. It does a little bit. But I mean, it, it, it's a, like if the person is, say, like, um, you know, 160 over 90, it might bring it down to like 156 over 88 or something. I mean, it really moves it very, very little. And, and so, you know, we keep trying and trying and trying and pushing this message. And also there, there is this understanding that processed foods tend to have a lot of sodium. And so that is all true. But there was a really interesting study that looked at the sodium intake in some sick type two diabetic heart patients. I mean, these are people that you would you would assume would be about as as likely to to show the dangers of sodium intake as as anyone in in the world. And what was interesting, if you can imagine in your mind kind of a a, a graph, but a U-shaped graph, and at very low intakes, uh, below two grams of of sodium intake per day, the morbidity and the mortality, the likelihood of getting sicker and or dying was very, very high. It was almost like a, a straight up and down you know, line. And then as these folks, it, what they did is they looked at the amount of sodium they all consumed. It was a large number of folks. It is kind of epidemiological in nature, but pretty, pretty well designed. And they were also uh, checking um, urine sodium levels. So where they were, they were looking at this from an excretion side of this story to see how much sodium was leaving the person's body, which is actually kind of better than like a food frequency questionnaire, like, well, how many potato chips did you eat or whatnot? You know, we were actually seeing what what sodium the kidneys were offloading out of these people. And what was interesting was that at two grams or lower of sodium intake per day was a very high risk of morbidity and mortality. At five grams per day, it got down to the low ebb of that U. Like it was actually the lowest morbidity mortality within the, this group of, of otherwise pretty unhealthy people. And then you, you on the right-hand side, morbidity and mortality did increase as sodium intake increased above five grams. But you had to get out to nearly eight to 10 grams of sodium per day to be as at risk as the two grams per day. And so the, the risk increased at a very flat rate, and you could easily make the case from this, this paper 
that it's far more dangerous to be too low in sodium, which ironically, the too low level is exactly the, the number that you cited. Like it is, it is the most dangerous um, area for these folks. And that there's a much more forgiving slope as you, you start going up. And then we have some, some broader population-based information, like looking at uh, populations that are understood to be much healthier than, than ours generally, uh, both from a cardiovascular disease standpoint and an all-cause mortality standpoint, like in Japan, they consume 10 to 12 grams of sodium per person per day, which is, you know, five to eight times, you know, greater than what, what we're being recommended to consume. And their government, as you know, a consequence of the influence of our government is telling their folks to reduce their sodium intake. But it, it, it's, again, this kind of interesting um, rope-a-dope where the, there mm. just isn't good data showing that reducing sodium intake above these, you know, the uh, it is really going to do anything. And uh, so that's kind of like a, a low-ebb or bracketing. And then there's also some interesting data from the American Council of Sports Medicine, which I was kind of surprised to find this. But for athletes, for people who work in the heat, or ironically, even in, in cold but dry environments, the American Council of Sports Medicine makes recommendations of 7 to 10 grams of sodium per day for these people. And this is in a population that is probably understood already to still be eating kind of a, a higher carb, uh, you know, fairly insulinogenic diet, but they, it's understood in that scenario that uh, most people who are pretty active would benefit from far more sodium intake than what is generally being recommended. So it seems like there's this sort of like perfect storm that exists with people who are maybe holistic or like we can say health conscious because they're not only eating whole foods like or like a whole foods centered diet they're also likely exercising and engaging mm -hmm. in fitness whether that's high intensity or not so the people who are who need a higher sodium intake are actually not consuming it simply because of their diet but also maybe because they've always been told not to salt their food and such yeah so. and and you know within uh kind of like the crossfit paleo scene um right. When folks shift to a, a less processed diet, um, there's not a lot of sodium there. I mean, unless you're eating like olives or anchovies, there's not a lot of foods that just come with a, a, a good amount of sodium with it. Right. And so uh, uh, you really have to go out of your way to to supplement under those circumstances because people are generally eating fewer calories. So they're not in that hyperinsulinemic state. They're eating lower carb, even if they're doing things like yams and sweet potatoes and fruit and stuff like that. It's really hard to get 300 grams of carbs a day, which is, you know, under kind of like a paleo template, which is half of what most Americans are getting in a kind of a standard American diet. So, and, and none of that really comes with a large amount of sodium. So I think that there are a ton of people, you know, it's kind of funny going, going way, way back. Uh, I think it was uh, 2003, I was having a conversation with Greg Glassman, and he was talking about how he noticed that the – and again, this is literally the paleolithic of CrossFit. I mean, 2003, what were folks right. doing right. then, you know, and um, – and he said, you know, Rob, I, I just see people need uh, a lot more sodium when they're doing this kind of paleozone type diet and when they're, they're high motor like 
like CrossFit. And he was recommending like five to 10 grams of total sodium per day. And that's where he was really a fan of like salted nuts and, and, you know, really liberally adding salt to all of your meals. And otherwise people ended up kind of, uh, adrenalized, like kind of burned out, um, mm -hmm. some kind of thyroid type type things. And I think that 95, 98% of the problems that we see with kind of ketogenic diets, um, if you're, if one is placed on a medically supervised ketogenic diet, like you go to a dietitian, you're, you're, you're given a prescription for this. Um, part of what the dietitian does is make sure that you get at least five grams of sodium per day as part of that diet. And they'll include like chicken bouillon cubes and stuff like that. But they know that this, this diuresis of fasting, this loss of sodium due to a low insulin environment is really problematic and can be, if at a minimum miserable and at the far extreme dangerous because of say like cardiac arrhythmias from, from electrolyte imbalances. So this is something that I think got lost when, um, lower carb diets kind of got launched out to the masses that, you know, everybody's super focused on protein, carbs, fat, and the, the need for electrolytes, specifically sodium just got lost in that whole shuffle. And I think that that's so much of why people feel horrible. And a lot of this kind of like adrenal fatigue, thyroid type stuff, when you look in mechanistically at what's going on there, if you have inadequate sodium, it is a major stress. You'll get an elevation in epinephrine, which is adrenaline and cortisol. And that's all in an attempt to retain more sodium, it, it, you know, whatever sodium that we do have around. And when you look at elevated cortisol, it antagonizes the conversion of T4 to T3. And so there definitely is some relationship between low carb diets and some kind of adrenal, quote, adrenal fatigue and, and thyroid issues. But at, at, if you had talked to me three years about this, I, I would have ascribed this to just being some genetic differences in, in folks that they just don't do well on low carb diets. And I've really shifted to saying, well, you may or may not do well on a low carb diet, but if you are experiencing these other problems, it's probably due to inadequate sodium. Ooh, that was good. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to review just a second. Low sodium can trigger what you, you said, epinephrine and cortisol. Yeah. So if we're doing all the right things, we're eating a whole foods diet, we're, you know, doing whatever, Peloton workouts, or we're still doing you know, CrossFit workouts from home, and we're not actually replenishing those electrolytes, specifically sodium, We our body's response is chronic cortisol stress. output. Yeah, stress. Which, by the way, I mean, we're already stressed. You know, there's already so many things that are spiking our cortisol. Um, so that just kind of like adds to it, which then we know chronic cortisol output can impact so many other things in the endocrine system, like you said, thyroid issues. Um, so it, it, is there any... I'm sure people are like, well, where do we get electrolytes from if we're not supplementing? Do, do we get them naturally in our diet or is this something we absolutely should be supplementing with? We, we get some in our diet and, and this is, you know, we get uh, part of the way that we formulated element was looking at about 250 people and they had been tracking, uh, they were following the keto gains protocol, which is a, a ketogenic diet, adequate protein, actually higher than what most people recommend for the protein, but whole food based. Like they're, they're not doing like fat bombs and stuff like that. Like they're eating real food. 
And what we noticed was that people got adequate calcium. They were a little bit skinny in magnesium. They were pretty good on potassium, but they, we, we could see that they would probably need a little bit more potassium, but they were like woefully inadequate in sodium. And th this is a, a sticky widget for me, you know, being kind of the paleo guy. It's kind of like, well, where did, you know, ancestral peoples get sodium? And one of the kind of interesting possible sources is that the way that we butcher and process our meat is that we we bleed it you know the animal is killed and then it's bled and what's interesting about that is the bulk of the sodium in an animal is in its extracellular fluid it's in kind of like the blood plasma and the the interstitial around the 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 cells and the bulk of the potassium is inside the cells and again that's part of the sodium potassium gradient, lots of sodium outside the cell, lots of potassium inside the cell. And then those, when those things try to reach an equal equilibrium, that's how energy is produced. And, and we have to burn energy to produce that, 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 uh, concentration gradient between the two of them. But it, it's interesting. Um, when you look at the total amount of sodium that's in an average mammal, um, when we, when we look at, at meat that we buy right now, a kilogram of meat has about a gram of sodium in it, but you could easily make the case that if the, it, it, when you look at the total amount of sodium in an organism, if we were to butcher it differently, not bleed it after, after, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, harvesting it, killing it, that if the sodium equilibrated into the muscle, you would maybe get double, possibly even higher than that. So, like that's a, a clear source of increased sodium that folks would have in the diet. And this this next piece, so I'm speculating on all this, um, but it, it's uh, this next piece is really speculative, but it makes a lot of sense. And I think some of our problem is that we actually just drink too many fluids. Mm -hmm. um, when you do look at at hunter gatherer groups, they do, there's there, this hasn't been super well studied, but um, they don't like harvest huge amounts of water and just like have their boda bag of water that they're pumping around with them. They, they, uh, they, they get water from their food. They will drink water at various, you, you know, um, uh, safe water sources. Sometimes they will harvest like a, a root or a tuber that they're able to squeeze some water out of, but it is not drinking like a 32 ounce, you know, thing of water or, or, a 16 ounce cup of espresso or something like that. And so when you look at part of what I think we are experiencing, it's that we're over consuming water and then we have to add that much more sodium back in the mix to be able to reach that, that normal equilibrium again. And th this sounds kind of crazy, but it, it, it does kind of fit within that, that kind of evolutionary Framework, and this is kind of an additional aside to that. Um, people who are fasting or in ketosis, if you are mainly burning fat as your primary fuel source, we actually uh, the condensation process of beta oxidation of fats it produces water, and an average sized person may produce 200 300 milliliters of water per day as a consequence of metabolizing fat. And so this is another place that, and again, this isn't huge amounts of water, but it's also a non-trivial amount of water that, that can be uh, garnered from, from fat product or fat oxidation. So 
Um, where folks got it, also there's there's some history that that people may have been uh, searching out salt licks for for a very very long time. There mm-hmm. even in um, hunter gatherer periods, there may have been some amount of trade around sodium. Certainly, once we get into the Neolithic and kind of city states, like uh, uh, the term salary comes from the Latin term for salt. Like right. it, it is right. that, that's where this stuff comes from, and so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 and again, you can put together all kinds of really potentially interesting historical stories to support my bias on this. But at the end of the day, like kind of clinically, if we see people struggling and we, we just do a little tinkering experimentation by, by increasing their electrolyte intake, specifically usually sodium, then things kind of magically write themselves. Yeah. It's really interesting that we, if we do, if you look back historically about salt. I mean, it was it was prized. It was used in trade. And I mean, even the Bible talks about the, you know, the salt of the earth. I mean, mm-hmm. it's referenced mm-hmm. everywhere, right? And now in our modern day, it's demonized. So it's just like this this huge shift. It's it's really, it, it makes you think. I think it's definitely worth being like, huh, what's going on here? Um, so I think we kind of glazed over it. And you, you mentioned a couple of things that might be a sign that you're not replenishing properly with with electrolytes but yeah how how exactly are electrolytes depleted i think we know sweat is one of them but then what are some of those common symptoms that someone isn't properly replenishing electrolytes i I know you mentioned adrenal fatigue and and maybe some thyroid issues but are there others yeah yeah maybe going kind of the really kind of gnarly situation would be uh, cramping and that can go all the way into kind of like cardiac arrhythmias and, and whatnot. But if you're in that, that state of cramping and usually people look towards magnesium as a solution to cramping. And ironically, a lot of people will say, Oh, potassium, you know, eat a banana or whatnot, but it's, um, it's actually potassium that causes the cramp and it's not to, it, and you know, like a lethal injection is actually a big bolus of potassium. It's a potassium salt. So, and it causes a heart cramp that, that doesn't resolve itself. So, um, and that's not to say that potassium isn't important. It absolutely is like we need a balance of all of these things. But the interesting thing with this is that if you provide adequate sodium, the kidneys are really good at kind of sorting out what they need. Like they will kind of sort and shuffle things as as they need. Um, but if sodium intake is inadequate, it's really hard for the kidneys to get on top of that. And what they end up doing is powerfully excreting potassium to try to get back to an equilibrium of having more sodium in the extracellular fluid and less you know, potassium. And that's where this thing can become a really uh, gnarly downward spiral. But, you know, cramping is is one of the, the, I would say, kind of common, but kind of end stage, like you've really gone quite far down the, the, the uh, uh, inadequate hydration. And again, with the hydration, understanding that that means electrolytes also, like you've gone quite far down that process, uh, lethargy, brain fog, um, those are, are, you know, pretty, pretty common. Um, the whole keto flu, you know, just feeling mm-hmm. bad when you've, you've kind of enacted some sort of dietary change. That's very, very common. Um, and then like, like you mentioned, kind of pushing it out over the long haul, like this chronic, uh, 
you know, low grade, low to moderate grade, inadequate electrolytes, uh, sleep disturbances, like waking up in the middle of night, like rapid heartbeat, um, those, Mm. those types of things. And then also the, uh, the adrenal, which really technically you should call it HPTA axis dysregulation. Like most doctors will bristle if you call it adrenal fatigue and like, well, how about HPTA axis dysregulation? Oh yeah, 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 totally. And it's okay, (laughs) fine. You know, we'll call it that we'll call the really difficult one, but, um, like those are kind of the, the more macro level things, I guess. And, you know, Chris Masterjohn, who is just brilliant with this stuff, it's maybe two and a half, three years ago that he, he did a piece talking about uh, folks waking up in the middle of the night to pee, both men and women. And he made the case that uh, this is oftentimes a stress response and taking a half a gram to a gram of sodium in just a, a bare amount of water, just enough to swizzle it down, like taking raw salt on our mucous membrane is not the, the best thing to do uh, on, on a chronic basis. But he made the case that this this bolus of salt right before bed would suppress antidiuretic hormone, which also helps to kind of quiet the, the rest of the adrenal function hmm. and that folks would sleep through the night more successfully. And we, we've seen that work powerfully within our, our healthy rebellion group. Like, like it, and again, particularly in folks that are in a lower carb you know, way of eating, like it just becomes that much more important to, to keep an eye on that. So again, I guess to recap, like all the way from cramping up to sleep disturbances and all of the kind of neurological brain fog, low energy that, that people experience, like it is funny because I'm a co-founder of this company and I can't tell you how many times like Nikki will look at me and she's like, how you doing? I'm like, Oh, I'm really dragging. I'm tired. And she's like, how many electrolytes have you had to stay in? I'm like, Damn you, woman, you know, and and, <laughs> I, and I literally had none. Like I drank yeah. coffee and did nothing else. And I'm doing exactly what I'm, I'm telling everybody else not not to do. Yeah. 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 I'm also really good at that. Like not, you know, <laughs> taking your own advice. It's like, oh, I can preach. Do it. Like, do this, do this, do this. Make sure you get to bed. Make sure, you know, and then I'm just like horrible at it. But yeah, um, something I was thinking about and actually a question that we got from someone that that ties in really well is, you know, how intuitive are like sodium requirements? So it might be a little bit tricky because you just mentioned how aldosterone kind of those levels adjust to, to, to meet our to match our intake and maybe you know this is just all like we can hypothesize but um is it i mean w- would our bodies be able to kind of i mean do you think maybe everybody has a unique sort of set point when it comes to sodium is it does that relate to somebody's sweat levels and is it can we say that like if you're craving salty foods it's likely because you aren't getting enough sodium I I think that that's a pretty safe place to be. And, you know, one of the common questions that we have uh, is uh, how how many electrolytes do I need in a given day? Or like how many uh, Mm -hmm. element stick packs do I need? And and that is our our most difficult question to answer. Um, Are you a 110-pound female working in an office? Are you a 240-pound machinist working in an un- air conditioned building in the South, you know, and it's 90 degrees and 98% humidity. And, and, uh, the, the main thing that we try to do is provide a bracket. Like here's a lower bound, here's an upper bound. And it, it seems pretty reasonable 
that for most people, and I, I would, the one caveat here I would have is if somebody's still eating kind of a junky standard American diet and they know that they have some, some insulin resistance occurring and they've got some hypertension, they don't need more sodium. They really need to address that, that hyperinsulinemic state and a low carb diet would be a great way to intervene there. But short of that, we understand pretty well that, uh, you know, somewhere around five grams of sodium per day seems to be kind of the low ebb of morbidity and mortality for a very sick population. So it seems reasonable that a non-sick population should be pretty, pretty safe there. And then depending on how active an individual is and how large they are, what they, what the environment is, everybody always, you know, they're like, oh yeah, heat and humidity, that'll increase your electrolyte needs. But I just became aware recently that, um, Cold weather, particularly when it's very, very cold and, you know, below freezing all the time and all the moisture has basically been like sucked. It's been freeze dried out of the air. That's incredibly dehydrating. And it is doubly hard to deal with because when humans are cold, their thirst centers get dialed down. And this is one of the problems that like mountaineers face is when they're, they're chronically cold, they're just not thirsty. And so you really have to goose these people to drink enough to, mm. to, you know, drink enough and make sure there's enough electrolytes in, in there to, uh, to stay ahead of that. So I would say that there probably is an intuitive element to it. Um, it, that gets a little bit tricky because I would always have an intuitive element towards potato chips and the claim that I need more potato chip for sodium. And, and I, I, I mean, my, my serving size for potato chips or corn chips is basically whatever the bag is. And so like right. those Costco bags that are as big as a small child, that's my serving size. So <laughs> I think that that can get turned into kind of a BS proposition too. Um, but I, I, you know, interestingly, folks, when they've used element, uh, and this isn't universal, but it's, it's pretty common. People will comment that um, if they are really if they're like, man, I was feeling really rough and I knew I needed some electrolytes, they will drink the mix and it tastes sweet. Like it just they get whatever the sweet flavor is, like raspberry or orange or whatever it is. And then as they sip on that for a while, they hit a point where they start tasting salt. And I think that that may be a sign of like, if you are just not tasting the sodium in that, then you really, really need it. And then as you start kind of reaching your, your saturation point, then you actually start getting, getting a, a sense of the flavor of that salt. I, I don't know if that's a hundred percent uniform thing, but it, it does mm -hmm. seem to be something that, that folks have shared with us. If you want a free eight pack of electrolytes, I have a lot for you from my favorite mineral electrolyte brand, Element. And best of all, grapefruit is back in stock. Here's the deal. If you are active, you're outside a lot in the heat, or you follow a whole foods diet, you likely need to replace your electrolytes. In fact, during strenuous activity, you can lose between 400 and 1200 milligrams of sodium per hour, and kids lose electrolytes too. Electrolytes are minerals. They are like the spark plugs in the body because they're responsible for 20,000 reactions, including the creation of energy. Many people don't realize this, but in order for water to be absorbed into your cells, you need minerals. You lose electrolytes when you sweat and go to the bathroom, and if not properly replenished, you could be drinking gallons of water but not actually 
hydrating your cells. Deficiencies show up as dizziness, muscle cramps, headaches, fatigue, sleep disturbances, and even some symptoms of adrenal dysfunction. One of my favorite ways to replace minerals is with Element. I started supplementing with Element after workouts, and it made a huge difference in my energy and the dizziness I used to experience. I now drink a pack even when I don't work out because it's warm outside, and it makes a huge difference in my energy levels. Element makes grab-and-go electrolyte replacement packs with no sugar, gluten fillers, or artificial ingredients. You just tear open a pack, pour, and stir it with water. I have actually now been mixing up half a packet for my kids when they are sick or they're outside playing in the heat, and even when my daughter is at her gymnastics practice. Right now, everyone, including new and current customers, can get a free eight-pack of Element with every order Element comes in boxes of 30. There is free shipping on all orders. And now all orders will get a free eight pack, which has all the flavors of Element. And yes, grapefruit is back. This is their most popular flavor. It's actually my current favorite. And I love having it during the summer. To get Element, go to drinklementlmnt.com forward slash wellfed and make sure to use code wellfed for your free sample eight pack. Again, that's drinklementlmnt.com forward slash well-fed. Yeah, that's super interesting. So if somebody is using, is supplementing with electrolytes or taking Element, should they still be salting their food a little bit more than normal? And um, do people, kind of going back to, to what you were talking about before, which is like, we've always been told to drink water and mm-hmm. drink more water and drink more water. And so if somebody is like, when somebody starts supplementing, do they find that they maybe need less water? Have you seen that? Like where people aren't as thirsty? Obviously, they become less dehydrated, I would think. But um, maybe that they they stop, they don't have as much thirst. Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, it's it, it, when we when I think about just my life, um, so much of the stuff that I, I drink regularly or, or, or tended to, it was like coffee or, mm-hmm. or some tea. And, um, and if you add a little bit of flavor to that, you know, going back to wired to eat, it's like, Oh, now I have a hyper palatable beverage that I, I can just shotgun, you know? And so even though I, I, you know, I want people to buy element and all, all that stuff, you know, what, but that said, I really encourage people to get as much sodium from their diet as they can. So like, I like salted nuts. I think those are a solid place to go. Um, some things, if people can stomach them, some of these, uh, salted fish products like, uh, uh, you know, bite fish and, and, um, uh, what are some other things? Olives, sardines, uh, but olives are like a sneaky way, like 10, 10 olives are like a gram of sodium. Like it's a really cool, sneaky way to, to get in a a remarkable amount of sodium. And it's got some potassium and magnesium with it. And it's got some other, you know, polyphenols and all this stuff. So my really crazy suggestion is try to get as much of it as you can from food. And I would encourage people um, this is maybe a case where like instead of drinking a, a you know, 32 ounce tankard of coffee, maybe you tinker with like a really potent, you know, four ounce pull of an espresso shot. 
and just do that and reduce that that total fluid intake and and see what what happens like do you feel better do it is is the need for sodium then reduced to some degree because we're we're not over adding water to the mix and and creating that type of problem so i want to jump into some questions from our community are you are you good on time Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So some of these are going to be just a slight review of of what we've discussed and they might be short answers, but I found this one really interesting. And this is this is one that has been that was liked a lot. In other words, people wanted to know more about it. Um, This is from Marley. She says, what imbalances cause constant thirst? And is it possible to drink too much water, which we just sort of pontificated? I find myself drinking probably about a gallon a day, and I'm not physically active at the moment. I also find that I like my food saltier than my husband. So I've been suspecting something is off, and we do about 90% of the cooking at home. And then Nikki replied to this and said, in the exact same way, it's been like this for as long as I can remember. I drink a lot of water just out of thirst, and I love my food super salty. Would love to know if there's an upper limit to normal. I've added electrolytes. She says she takes one packet of Element a day, and I think it helps. But do I need more? Is something weird going on? <laughs> so I think everybody's a little concerned about, like, I have constant thirst. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so one of the, you know, the first things uh, that you wonder about with that, like, is it constant thirst and constant urination? And that that's one of these uh, kind of benchmark, you know, things that alerts a a physician or healthcare practitioner to like, is this individual diabetic like that? That's, Mm -hmm. you know, um, that is one of these things. So like would really want to rule that out, you know, uh, fasting glucose and A1C, like however they would want to get in and and kind of look at that. And it's probably not the thing, but it, it could be. But it is an interesting question. Like, is that thirst trying to get the individual to get adequate electrolytes? Like, is it really not Mm -hmm. like water specifically, but actually that full complement of, of, um, you know, water and electrolytes. Uh, and again, the, the upper bound, like my, my friends, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, who founded uh, keto gains, like they have women in there that are in the the 10 to 15 grams of sodium per day level because they're kind of high motor. And, and, um, I don't know what like their beverage consumption really looks like, but you know, they're kind of lower carb keto. Uh, they get a lot of the sodium from food sources. They do supplement in, in various ways, but this is, it, 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 it's kind of a bummer because, um, I don't have a more scientific way to, to help people dial this stuff in. Like I've got kind of a lower bound and an upper bound. Uh, people ask if you can do blood work on this stuff. You can, but uh, electrolytes get rejiggered by the kidneys in like 15 minutes. So it, it, it just changes constantly. So it, it uh, blood work really isn't going to tell you much of anything on this. Like you, you would need to do it constantly and, and it, it, it still would be less valuable than, um, then, uh, uh, you know, just tinkering, I guess I would be interested to know, like, do these folks have any other kind of problems going on, like mm-hmm. disturbed sleep, like uh, kind of high heart rate in the evening? Um, are they waking up in the middle of the night? Like, it'd be interesting to know if they have some other stuff going on. But it, it's unfortunately, it's kind of hard to pin that stuff down. Exactly. You know, it, 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 again, probably uh 
a minimum of five grams of sodium a day from all sources, but that can titrate up to two to three times that, um, depending on the size of the person, their activity level, the environment they're in, all that type of stuff. Yeah. The other uh, very popular question is, is there a specific rule of thumb for how much someone should be hydrating? And then, you know, what considerations should people make if they are sweating a lot and in warmer climates or even, you know, what about breastfeeding? Like I had a lot of breastfeeding moms saying, I'm just like, what do I need to think about? Obviously, we're told to hydrate and drink a lot of water. Should that water contain electrolytes? Well, you know, so I'll tackle the breastfeeding one because it's honestly easier to some degree. But uh, when we launched all of this, we were definitely looking at kind of serving more like the low carb keto oriented kind of athletic crowd. And then things kind of, kind of, you know, expanded out from there, but it was kind of wacky. Um, over a year ago, year and a half ago, we started getting tagged on a bunch of social media posts and it was within these exclusive pumping mommy groups. So they, they are, you know, the kids are getting breast milk, but they're exclusive pumpers because the moms work or, you know, whatever the the deal was. But folks started tagging us because a couple of women, they they showed like, this is what I pumped yesterday without element. And it was like just a tiny amount in one of these little, little bottles. And then the next day was like three full bottles. And Mm. it just went like wildfire through this community. And they reached out to us and they were like, does any of this make sense? And I started poking around and it it makes a ton of sense. Um, Sodium increases fluid volume. And this is really the driver that you need to be able to move more fluid through the, the filtering and duct system of the breast tissue to produce that breast milk. Just simply adding more water doesn't necessarily do that and could actually go the opposite direction because the breast milk is a, a, a more hypertonic solution. It's got things dissolved in it. And the body is going to be reticent to allow that to happen if it does not have solutes dissolved in it, you know, like sodium, potassium, et cetera. So simply overconsuming water doesn't guarantee that that will improve anything. And I, I could actually mechanistically make the case that it would make things worse. And so... It, it uh, uh, elevated sodium also tends to suppress, all, uh, you know, these adrenal hormones, which also antagonize breast milk production. And so mechanistically, we have some really interesting things that kind of paint a picture like, yeah, this this makes sense. And then also just kind of clinically, we have these outcomes where people went from like virtually no production to really remarkable production. So a good friend of ours is an MD, PhD, and the, the dean of the School of Epidemiology at Vanderbilt. And she felt like this was a strong enough you know, kind of case story that we actually got funding and were, had a, a study put together to look at breast milk production in folks using in, in breastfeeding moms um, uh, using element. And it was just getting ready to go when COVID basically shut all of that type of stuff down. So we're mm-hmm. we're on ice right now with that. But I mean, mechanistically, it, it makes a ton of sense. And, uh, uh, and and again, I would I would throw out there that just simply throwing um water into the mix will not always fix things. It, again, you know, like one of the 
one of the problems that happens in like uh, fraternity hazing and stuff like that that make these kids drink huge amounts of water. These kids can die from that. Mm. And it's because the, the, the sodium potassium ratios get massively diluted. So just dumping more water into a system that is electrolyte deficient could arguably make things worse, not better. And, and I know that there's a, a question in there, well, how much hydration do you need? And I just don't know, again, like mm. how large is the person? What's the, the, the you know, um, heat, humidity, activity level? Um, so I think thirst to some degree is a, a not bad indicator. But again, um, I would I would throw that out with the caveat that folks need to make sure that they're getting at least five grams of sodium per day. So, uh, you know, consume water or beverages as per your your thirst, but uh, make sure that you're getting enough that like at least five grams of sodium. And uh, I think that in that kind of push pull process, they'll be able to get to a spot where they're they're much more dialed in. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking from personal experience, I um. I don't even really work out that intensely all that often, maybe like twice a week now. And um, I'm always thirsty. I'm always drinking water. But I have found that after doing some sort of like high intensity, like cycle workout where I'm out in the garage, it's cold. I'm not even sweating that much, but I'm sweating enough. The rest of the day, I cannot... I cannot quench thirst. And so hmm. it was like a you know a month or two ago that I got Element. And I even just – I just started – really what I started doing was using a half a packet in water post any sort of workout, whether it was like in heat or not. Um, and it helped tremendously because when I feel like this empty, thirsty feeling – after a workout, it's sort of in my chest and I almost mm -hmm. feel like snacky because I need like I'm trying to, to satiate it. Like it's almost like a depletion and you feel that depletion. But it all it, it's like, do I need food or water? Like, how do I get through? Like, what do I need? And I, you know, I needed sodium. It's basically yes. what it came yeah. down to. And, and, you know, I would make the case for doing, um, you know, mix the whole thing up and do maybe half before and half afterwards oh, and maybe even too. more than that. Yeah. That's yeah. smart too. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's maybe hit one or two more. Um, this is from Mallory. She says, can adrenal fatigue or stress in general cause excess thirst or dehydration? And when I'm having an emotionally or she says, when I'm having an, an emotionally, mentally stressful day or even just a busy day, I notice I get incredibly thirsty for several hours. I always drink a lot of water, but I drink a lot more on these days and it's like I don't even feel it. What is that about? So like this was kind of an interesting concept for me. When we ha experience really stressful days, should we be thinking about our sodium intake? Absolutely. Yes. Huh. Like the, the short answer to that is yes. And uh, uh, adequate sodium mitigates that that stress response for sure. Wow. And, and again, I would make the case that if you're just dumping excess water and again, you can get this a variety of ways. It, it could be like olives or salted nuts or, you know, just adding salt to your food. When I make soups, I, I take the chicken bouillon cubes and throw like three or four of those into every pot. So um, a variety of sources, but by hook or by crook, getting adequate sodium. And, you know, like we've 
with everything going on, we've noticed that Nikki and I are more stressed than usual. Like we are very lucky. We work from home. Our, our baseline has not been massively affected, but just kind of like the onslaught of like stress. And, and also we, we took all social media off of our, our phones and everything, like all that is gone, um, which has helped a lot, but there's just this baseline of stress. And I noticed that if I am just kind of like spun out, um, if I do, if I do like some salted nuts or I do a, an element or something like that, like I feel better immediately. It's, it, it's, it's like a Valium almost. It's just, you're kind of like, Oh man, I, it's just that, That's that nice. like, freaky little bit of, of, uh, anxiety. It just kind of takes it off the map for you. So I think that there's probably some good, you know, body wisdom going on there, but I don't know if folks are really feeding that quite properly because again, just putting water in the mix is not really going to address that, that issue, you know, mm-hmm. unless they're, they're just, um, what, what's the thing? Anchovies. Like if you're eating a can of anchovies and you just ate five grams of sodium, okay, fine. You, you need to drink some water to balance that out, but nobody's doing that, you know? So yeah. it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, last one, which I kind of think is an interesting question. This one's from Ashley. She says, do we need to be adding minerals to our water? So I know that there's like a lot of <laughs> different types of water out there now. Is it, is it important that we have minerals in the water that we're drinking? And if do we need to be salting our water or should we always be like adding... I mean, I, I think that's a little far-fetched. We probably don't need to be drinking Element all day anytime we drink water. But, you know, is that something that we should be thinking about moving forward? Like, what are the contents of our water? And like you said, somehow we separated electrolytes and hydration. So is that something maybe long-term that we look at, like, our water needs minerals or our water needs electrolytes? Yeah, and it gets sticky, though. And, and uh, um. You know, it's if you drink uh, uh, distilled water, I think that that can be a problem. But again, it's kind of like how much are you drinking? Are we kind of following a little bit more of an ancestral schedule where it's it's like, you know, a, a very small cup of water versus like drinking 64 ounce tankards of water that are flavored with tea or coffee. Like, I, I think that that becomes a little bit of a thing. There are some folks out there that are like, oh, you know, all diseases cause from lack of calcium and magnesium in your water. And so you need to get this like $4,000 water filter. It filters out this and adds that back in. And right. I, I don't know. Yeah, um, I, seems that like. seems a little bit of a stretch too, but it, it's, uh, and again, it seems crazy, but I, I could make the case that, yeah, maybe we just broadly overconsume too much too many liquids, you know, again, maybe espresso is better than, you know, like, uh, 24 ounces of coffee, right. um, you know, because, because of the volume. So you've got all that fluid volume and now what does that do to your needs for balancing out all the rest of that stuff? You know? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Thank you, Rob, for, um, answering all of these questions. And I'm absolutely thrilled with Element and the work you're doing there. I have been supplementing with Element, like I mentioned, and I I do feel like it's made a huge difference. And I love that Element is doing the sample packs for us. So for everyone listening, you can grab a free sample pack. So it's a packet of like eight individual packets of Element by going to Drink Element. So that's L-M-N-T, Drink Element dot com 
slash well-fed. I actually was kind of thinking about this, Rob, what we were talking about. It kind of seems like, like most people should have a packet of Element or just like, you know, electrolytes like in their emergency kit. You know, like it just seems like it should probably be in your car and wherever else because it is so crucial, like you said, when when people are are um, overexerted and, and or maybe even, you know, depleted, like sucking on some salt is what really helps. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where can we find more about you and, and what you're doing with the health of most of what I'm doing is over at drinkelement.com and then uh, join.thehealthyrebellion.com. I I, uh, I still dump some stuff on social media, but I don't really interact on there. I, I still try to provide some value, but the uh, the scene has gotten sufficiently toxic that uh, I just kind of like throw the hand grenade over the fence and run away. So, yeah. <laughs> It's a good visual. Thank you, Rob, for being here. This is nice. This is a great platform that I'm always going to continue to show up to because I can decide what I'm going to talk about and I don't have to deal with anybody um, and and the toxicity like you mentioned. So I appreciate you coming here. I appreciate you, you know, answering all these questions and for the work you're doing. Thank you. And can't wait to see you guys in real life again. Yeah, hopefully soon. Um, All right. For everything that we mentioned here in this episode, you can go ahead to our show notes or my show notes. It's coconutsandkettlebells.com. And if you scroll down, you'll see all the podcast episodes. Um, drinkelement.com slash wellfed, again, is that free sample pack. And if you want more from me, you can go to coconutsandkettlebells.com. And on Instagram, I'm at coconutsandkettlebells. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for being here. We will talk to you next week.